Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm sorting through the Tax Girl mailbag. I get a lot of questions from readers and listeners, and I try as much as possible to answer them. Sometimes, though, there are questions that deserve a little extra attention or might be something that a lot of folks are asking. So I decided to read and answer some of those questions on the podcast. Let's get to it. First question. Dear Tax Girl, my friend makes $200 a week under the table and he works under the table. Will he get in trouble? I want to know so I can let him know. Okay, let's talk about under the table. Under the table usually means that you're accepting money from an employer that isn't being formally reported, not to the IRS, not to anywhere. So no Form W-2 at the end of the year, no Form 1099, just cash in hand. And I want to clarify here that accepting cash for employment and being paid under the table are not the same thing. You can legitimately be paid in cash by an employer. That's not wrong. What is wrong is or what is classified as being under the table, which I will tell you I believe to be wrong, is not accepting any form of reporting. So the employer is simply paying you and not having a formal record of your employment. And they do this either because they don't want to report to the authorities or because there may be issues like immigration or tax compliance that the employer is either avoiding or keeping on the down low. But that is not your problem. And if you don't remember anything else I say today, please remember that. Your employer isn't doing you a favor by paying you under the table, no matter how they characterize it. On the tax side, if you are paid under the table, you still want to report that income even if your employer doesn't and even if your employer tells you that they're not going to. And you don't have to have a tax form in hand to report your income. So if you don't have a W-2 or you don't have a 1099, you can still file a tax return. Now, if you're being paid under the table, when you report on that tax return, you are now responsible for paying both sides of FICA taxes. So that means the employer and the employee portion of Social Security and Medicare. And if you look at your normal check stub, if you're an employee, you'll see where you pay half of those taxes and the employer pays half of those taxes. But if you are a self-employed person or you are a freelancer, or in this case, being paid under the table, you're responsible for paying both sides. If you're under the table, you're also not having your federal, state, and local taxes withheld. So that means you're going to have to keep good records. You're going to have to make estimated payments, and you're going to have to report that income to all of those authorities. So what's really happening here is that your employer is shifting the reporting and tax payment burdens that they would normally be responsible for to you. And working under the table can have some other disadvantages. You aren't getting the benefits that you might be entitled to, like health insurance and retirement contributions. 
And if there's no official report of your employment, then there is no way to prove if there's a problem or a conflict that you've actually been paid or that you've actually been employed. So if there's a conflict about how many hours you worked, whether you took a day off um, or any other related problem, it becomes your word against theirs. And that can have real world implications. What if, for example, your employer decides that they wanted that tax deduction, maybe because their accountant told them to, and they're reporting you to the IRS after all, and you weren't expecting to be reported, and you don't report, now that's a problem. What if you get hurt and there's no record of your wages for you to collect workers' comp? What if you get laid off and there's no payment into the system or any proof that you ever worked, so now you can't collect unemployment? Also, it's important to remember that this information about compensation is typically used for other things like getting a mortgage, perhaps getting a rent, checking credit, and even future employment. So as you can probably tell, I'm not a fan of being paid under the table. It feels like your employer is doing you a favor, but they're not. But if you accept that job and you agree to be paid under the table, I hope that you will at least Make sure to file your own taxes so that you have a record of your employment and that you pay your taxes properly so that you don't get in trouble later. And I hope that helps. Okay, next question. Hi, tax girl. I hope you're well. I have a question pertaining to losses in the stock market. I know that I can use up to $3,000 per year to reduce my income, but is there a limit to how much I can use to offset capital gains? For example, let's assume my salary is $100,000 and I had a $30,000 stock loss in 2020. Pretty big. (laughs) So now in April, I will be able to use $3,000 from that loss to reduce my ordinary income to $97,000 and then carry the additional $27,000 loss into 2022. If I never buy stocks again, it would take me 10 years to slowly offset the $30,000. But what if I have a $27,000 gain in the stock market in 2021? Can I use the full $27,000 to offset this gain or is there an annual limit as well? So what the taxpayer is talking about are the capital loss limits. If your capital losses exceed your capital gains, the amount of the excess loss that you can claim to lower your income is the lesser of $3,000 or your total net loss. That number is $1,500 for folks who are married filing separately. But if your net capital loss is more than this limit, you can carry forward the loss to later years. Unfortunately for the taxpayer, the carry forward limit is $3,000 per year for excess losses. So in the example that he gave about never buying stock again, never having another gain, he would be restricted to that $3,000 carry forward. However, if the taxpayer does have other gains in the following year, the taxpayer can apply any capital gains towards those losses. So important to remember, you offset capital gains with capital losses and you carry forward any losses to the next year, but there are limitations. Okay, next question. Last year, my mother sold her house and she gave me a $15,000 check as a gift. Do I have to report that $15,000 to the IRS? Thank you for reading this and thank you for any help. Okay, so almost any money that comes your way is taxable income under uh, Section 61 of our tax code. That's kind of the premise of our whole tax code. However, that amount is taxable income unless it's otherwise excluded. 
And fortunately, Section 102A of the tax code specifically excludes gifts from income. So you don't have to report it or pay tax on it. Now, that assumes that it's a real gift. In the uh, tax world, we like to say that a gift is given out of genuine love and affection with no expectation of anything in return. So typically, you can't sell something, call it a gift, unless it's a, a discount of fair market value issue there. And almost always, an employer cannot give an employee a proper gift. Again, love and affection, no expectation of anything in return. So I'm going to assume that since this is a, a gift from her mom, that it is an actual gift, love and affection, no expectations. So the gift recipient does not have to report that $15,000 to the IRS's income. That said, while you don't have to report a gift as income, someone who is making the gift may have to report it for gift and estate tax purposes if that amount exceeds the annual gift tax exclusion. Fortunately for this taxpayer, for 2022, that amount is $16,000 per person for the year. So. No report necessary if that's the only gift for gift tax reasons for the person who made the gift. And then for the person who received the gift, it's not income. All right, here's a related question. Hi, I wanted to know if I would get in trouble for receiving $30,000 from my daughter's father. The money is to be used for a down payment on a home when I start looking to buy. I know anything over $15,000 given as a gift has to be reported to the IRS. Could he give me $15,000 this year and $15,000 the next year? Or is that considered structuring payments? I just want to do this the right way and not get into trouble. The money is from the sale of a home we lived in together, but only he was on the deed. We are no longer together, but he wanted to give me the money so I could buy a home for me and my daughter in the next few months. I'm just not sure how to go about it. Okay, so same answer applies. Gifts are not income. But I do want to address this issue of structuring. Structuring occurs when large transactions are broken into smaller ones in order to avoid bank reporting requirements, which kick in, as most folks know, at $10,000. And if you do that, if you structure a transaction to avoid those bank reporting requirements with the intent to evade, it's illegal. Now, the actual practice of making these uh, cash deposits or withdrawals of less than $10,000 is not illegal under the statute. Like, so if, for example, you do $9,000 this week, a couple of weeks later, you deposit $9,000 again. That's not illegal. That's not structuring. It only violates the law when the transactions are structured, quote, for the purpose of evading, end quote, those reporting requirements. So if you make the determination that you're going to be making regular deposits of $9,000 just to avoid that $10,000 reporting threshold, that's where you get into trouble. The actual making the deposit itself, even if it's close to you know that threshold, that on its own isn't what gets you in trouble. It's the intent to evade. And it's actually a banking secrecy issue, not a tax reporting requirement. That said, there are some tax issues that tend to accompany that. So I'll talk about that in a second. But I do want to stress that you can absolutely, absolutely plan gifts to fit within the annual gift tax reporting requirements. In fact, estate planners encourage it. It's good tax planning. That's not structuring. Completely different. If I'm making uh, a plan that's good tax planning to give you the annual exclusion amount every year to reduce my taxable estate for whatever reason, 
that's not structuring. It's good tax planning. That's different than evading bank reporting requirements. That said, gift tax is a little more complicated than it's often painted. And if you make a gift that is more than that exclusion amount, so in this case, the $30,000 that the taxpayer was talking about is more than $16,000, which is the uh, gift tax threshold for the exclusion for 2022, gift tax is paid by the gift giver. And that's important to know. But if you make a gift that's more than that exclusion amount, again, in this case, 30000 is more than 16000 Gift tax paid by the gift giver, sometimes called a donor, isn't immediately payable for most taxpayers. So what really happens is that it chips away at your basic exclusion uh, for federal estate tax purposes. The federal estate and gift tax uh, systems are very closely related. So for 2022, that federal estate tax amount, that exclusion amount, is $12,060,000. And that is a lot of money. And what that means from a practical standpoint is that gift tax rarely affects middle-class taxpayers, even if they give large sums of money for gifts. So on the income tax side, what your daughter's father gives you out of love and affection with no expectation of anything in return, that gift to you is not reportable. And if he gives it to you in one lump sum, that is not structuring. If he gives it to you in one lump sum and it's over the exclusion amount, it may be applicable for gift tax reasons. But again, you want to look to that bigger number, that $12 million number, that's your lifetime exclusion amount. You're probably not going to be in those thresholds. And so you probably don't need to worry about it. If you have questions, obviously, it's a really good idea to ask a tax professional on that. But most middle-class taxpayers are not subject to federal, estate, and gift tax laws. Again, some exceptions. Sometimes we have big dollar amounts for life insurance and other gifting, maybe with small companies, family businesses. But for cash gifts, generally speaking, gift tax rarely affects middle-class taxpayers. All right, next question. Dear Tax Girl, thanks in advance for any advice. I saved over $50,000 cash, not in any bank account, over the course of many years. Now I want to use it to pay off my house. I'm scared I will get audited or the IRS will seize it when I deposit it into my checking account. I've always been working full-time and have worked full-time or part-time for most of my life. Uh, My spouse has always had a full-time job, but opened his own shop two years ago. We've always had our income taxes done professionally. We've never had any issues with the IRS in the past. We've never been in any kind of trouble except maybe a speeding ticket. I know you can't predict the future, but I'm hoping you'll have some insight. Should I be worried? Okay. So this is kind of related to the last question. And the question here is about cash deposits. Again, the actual practice of making cash deposits or withdrawals of less than $10,000 is not illegal. It only violates the law when transactions are structured, again, for the purpose of evading those uh, reporting requirements. But if you make a deposit to your bank or credit union of over $10,000, the bank or the credit union is required to report it to the federal government. And what they'll report it on is called a CTR or a currency transaction report. And that $10,000 threshold has actually been around for a while. 
It was actually created in the 1970s as part of the Banking Secrecy Act. It was updated with the Patriot Act in 2002, and it still stands today. And so again, the rule is if you make a deposit of over $10,000, it has to be reported. If you make a series of transactions smaller than that to avoid the reporting, it's illegal. But the actual making of that deposit over $10,000, it's not illegal. What it triggers is for the bank to make this report, the CTR. And as part of that CTR, the bank's going to ask you to verify your ID. So you're going to have to provide your social security number, your name, your address. The bank may also provide account information to the IRS. And actually, I guess they send it to Treasury, not so much IRS. It's the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. Um, and what the government is looking for are folks who are committing money laundering or committing tax evasion. They're not trying to trap regular taxpayers who are just making big deposits. And, you know, it's it's not all that unusual, quite frankly, to make large cash deposits. Small businesses do it all the time. So if you haven't done anything wrong and you have great records, you should be fine. Just be aware that you might attract some attention in the process. So, again, you're going to have those great records to back up that you've always filed your taxes, that, you know, this is money that you've just saved over the years. So as with many things tax-related, I recommend really good record-keeping. Okay, next question. If you are denied a tax refund advance loan, can you reapply elsewhere? Okay, so if you know me, if you either listen to me on the podcast or if you read my column, you know that I'm typically not a fan of refund advance loans or RALs, or associated loans. And basically what these are, are these are loans that are typically provided by or in association with the tax preparer, where the amount of the loan that's provided to the taxpayer is roughly equivalent to your anticipated tax refund, less any fees or interest due. And you'll typically see folks applying for these in January, around the time that IRS is opening tax season. And it's because the taxpayers want to get their tax refunds in advance. And so these preparers, or again, oftentimes it's a lender in conjunction with the preparer, say, you know what, we know that you're supposed to be getting $2,000 back, so we'll give you a $2,000 loan or we'll give you an $1,800 loan or, or, or whatever. When the refund comes in, um, the lender gets paid back, again, plus fees, interest, whatever is due. So that's the, typically how it works. And again, if you've listened to me, you know that I'm typically not a fan, but I will answer this question about why you might be turned down. So there are a few reasons why you might be turned down. The most common reason tends to be that the lender decides that you're not a good risk. Remember, these kinds of loans have to be repaid even if you receive a smaller tax refund than anticipated. So if, again, you are expecting a $2,000 refund, and they give you again the loan that they give you is for eighteen hundred. Refund comes through, and it's actually just thirteen hundred. You're still responsible for paying back that entire eighteen hundred or whatever the loan amount was. And one of the reasons that this is trickier than it used to be is because the IRS no longer provides tax preparers, banks, or lenders with something called a debt indicator. And this debt indicator was kind of like a heads up to the lender from the IRS, whether there might be an offset that might apply to the refund. IRS hasn't done this for many years. 
And as a result, the lender has to make a determination about whether or not they think that you can repay the entire amount based on other factors, right? So they're going to look at things like your credit history or your salary to see whether or not they will issue you that loan. So you have to hope that your tax refund is going to be large enough after you take out these interest rates and fees and tax prep fees and any of that stuff, plus any potential offsets or for things like student loans to pay off the loan, or you have to dip into your pocket to pay the overage. So when the lenders are looking at whether or not you're considered creditworthy or whether or not they think that you are going to be able to repay this loan, they're going to look at a couple of factors. They're also going to look at whether or not you have a pattern of offset. And again, they may know this if they were your prior preparer. But if you owe child support, student loans, again, the government can ding your refund for that amount. And that can affect how much you get back. And again, might impact whether or not the lender wishes to extend the loan to you. So again, it could be your credit. It could be that you have bad credit. You might not have made enough money to support repayment. Those are all reasons that you might be turned down. But there also might be other reasons that aren't your fault. Like you might have been the victim of identity theft. Or the company might be dishonest and intended to deny your loan from the beginning, but just didn't tell you because they wanted that related tax prep, loan application, credit check, and junk fees. And you'll see a lot of cases where these allegations have been made about certain of these companies. Again, not all, just some. So if you've been rejected for a refund loan, uh, try reaching out to the company to find out why. It could be that it's something that's fixable. And then it's worth trying again. It could be that the company wasn't a great company and another company is a better fit. But if it's something more serious, like an offset or a credit problem, trying again might not be worth it. So if that's the case, do remember that tax season opens soon. The IRS typically anticipates issuing more than nine out of 10 refunds in less than 21 days. This has been a rather crazy year. But, you know, we haven't had any official word from the IRS that suggests that refunds are going to be delayed more than usual. So, again, if you've been rejected for a reason that's not fixable, that doesn't mean you can't still get your refund. It just means you have to be a little more patient. Sorry, I couldn't give you better news on that one. Okay, next question. I am trying to find out if my son, who is a social media influencer slash creator, can write off his college tuition. He is taking classes in digital media production to improve slash enhance his media presence online. He does a variety of digital marketing and promotional work on several social and digital media platforms. His work doesn't require any professional licenses or degrees. He is taking classes to improve his skills for an existing job. He seems to fall in an undefined area as a social media influencer. So first of all, Kudos to your son. Sounds like he has a pretty cool job. But as to your question about whether or not he can write off his college tuition because of that job, gosh, I wish it were, <laughs> it were, were the case. If so, there would totally be a tax kids blog and a podcast. But I don't think that he's going to be able to. And here's the reason. On the surface, it feels like you're okay because your son has a business and this as an expense 
for something related to the business, right? So that's that's where you kind of your baseline, like, should this be deductible? It's kind of where your head goes, right? But there is a hurdle. Um, and whenever you think about whether a business expense is deductible, you want to ask yourself, is it ordinary and necessary? That's the IRS's criteria for deducting business expenses. And an ordinary expense is one that is common and accepted in your industry. It's the one time that you care about what your competitors are doing. And no matter what your mother says, it does matter whether everybody else is doing it too. Ordinary. Other is necessary. A necessary expense is one that is helpful and appropriate for your trader business. You don't have to prove that you couldn't be in business without this expense. More or less, it just needs to make good business sense. And again, for an expense to be deductible for federal income tax reasons, it needs to be both ordinary and necessary. And I do think under the circumstances that you've outlined here, you could make an argument for necessary, right? Like it's helpful and it's appropriate. You've said so. But I don't think this passes the ordinary test. You know, I work with a number of bloggers and social media influencers and taking extra courses uh, in college to improve their skills, especially college tuition. um, It's not something that I see as a regular occurrence. That said, there may be educational related deductions and credits that could be applicable here. Some of those do require the pursuit of a degree. And that sounds like it's not the case here. But for example, the lifetime learning credit might be available since it applies to those who are pursuing higher education courses to get a degree or recognized credential or to get or improve job skills, which does sound like it's the case here. However, just a quick note, your son can't claim that credit if you're also claiming him as a dependent on your tax return. And you didn't say if that was the case here. So my general answer is doesn't sound like it meets the criteria to be a business deduction, but it might be something that you can claim on the educational side, either as a deduction or a credit, depending again on um, what the the plan is long-term. Okay, Uh, so that's the mailbag for today. I hope it was helpful. Unfortunately, it's impossible to give comprehensive tax advice on a podcast. This podcast isn't meant to be legal or accounting advice. It's information. Um, I hope it's helpful information. If you have a real question, though, like you're hiding in a closet and the feds are banging on your door, you need to consult with a tax or legal professional or maybe both. So just keep in mind that when you have a specific question that isn't addressed here, don't ignore it or don't try to make it fit into one of these scenarios. Ask questions. And of course, one more thing, which is that just in the last 10 years alone, The tax code has been amended or revised over 4,000 times, and that's a lot. And it's changed even more recently with the legislation that we've seen during COVID, but even before that with the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, You know, and those were massive shifts. So the reality is that when it comes to tax, the target is always moving. And I can't promise you that the laws, the regs, and other guidance even if it's applicable today, won't change from the time that I say this to the time that you hear it. So keep in mind that the content might not be current or applicable to your particular situation because you know that facts matter. This is something I talk about a lot on the podcast. So again, if you have any questions, I highly recommend that you consult with a tax professional. But if you do have a question that wasn't answered here today, feel free to send it my way. 
you can email me at askthetaxgirl at taxgirl.com. And I thank you very much for your attention today. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl Podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.